This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Scott Galloway. He hails to us from NYU Stern School of Business. He is the author of the Digital IQ Index, a global ranking of prestige digital competence. He has been ranked one of the world's 50 best business school professors. He founded several companies, Red Envelope, Profit, L2. He has also been recognized by the World's Economic Forum as one of the global leaders of tomorrow. Professor Scott Galloway, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. Good to see you. What brought you to my attention a few years ago was a video that you had done. It was a conference appearance about the four horsemen, mm -hmm. and they were Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. So so why don't we start with those? Sure. Uh, let's talk about Google. In a recent L2 video you did, and you also speak every year at the uh, Digital Brands Conference, DLD, I think it DLD is. DLD in Munich, great conference. Um, you talked about Google lowered its price 11%, mm -hmm. and yet it increased its total ad revenue 20%. Mm -hmm. They seem to really be dominating online advertising. Can you imagine how difficult all this, whether you're, whether you're competing with them, your clear channel outdoor, uh, your, uh, the New York Times, your Hearst, and you have a company that's able to, a competitor that's able to increase its revenues 23% and lower its prices 11%. And initially, the analysts thought that was a sign of weakness because their cost per click was going down. But effectively, Google every year gets more and more competitive. It's like, how do you know if an industry is ripe to be disrupted? They it raise their prices faster than inflation with no underlying increase in innovation. You could argue that media or television is incredibly ripe to be disrupted. Mm -hmm. Increase their prices much faster than inflation while viewership has gone down. Whereas Google is probably the least disruptable business right now in media because every year it gets substantially better and they keep lowering their prices. So the other um, leader in, in digital advertising is mm -hmm. Facebook. Yep. Uh, are they ever going to be able to give Google a run for their money? Oh, they already are. I mean, between the two of them, and it really is a duopoly, mm -hmm. if you look at all the digital marketing, um, Facebook and Google accounted for 103% of the growth. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you aren't Facebook or Google and you're, you're in digital marketing, <laughs> officially the industry is in structural decline. Mm -hmm. So if you work for anyone who's ad tech platforms, search engine optimization, an agency doing media planning online, your business, like newspapers and magazines, is in decline. So let's talk a little bit about Facebook. You said mm -hmm. their pivot to mobile mm -hmm. was one of the greatest shifts of a large corporation in history. Yeah, arguably the most agile company in the world. Three years ago, 0% of the revenue from mobile. Mark Zuckerberg said he did not believe in kind of the app economy, thought it was all going to be about browsers. And he was wrong and pivoted and you know, turned the fire hose of great management, great engineering talent. And now I think about 83, 85% of the revenue comes from mobile. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine a pivot. We all saw mobile coming, but Yahoo mm -hmm. wasn't able to get to 80%. The New York Times was. This is, this is the most impressive agile pivot, I think, in the history of business. Now, you've also previously called them one of the greatest bait and switch sure. setups of all time. Why is that? So the general the general promise from uh, Facebook was invest in your Facebook page, Nike, and you're going to have this incredible asset. You're going to have a captive marketing or a captive asset, which will be people who have raised their hand and said, I have an affinity for Nike, and then you'll be able to communicate directly to them that you'll have an asset. 
in order to build this asset, you had to advertise. And Nike and other firms spent millions of dollars advertising to build their fan community. And it was nice because it had this vanity metric of how many fans you had. Mm-hmm. It became a symbol of whether a company got it or not based on how many how many fans you had on Facebook. And then once kind of that that hundreds of millions of spending to build these communities was sort of done, Facebook turned around and said, just kidding. If you want to reach these people, you've got to advertise. And organic reach, that is the percentage of Nike's messages that reach their end fans, went from 100% down to 8, 5, or 3. It's tantamount to you building a house, putting the finishing touches on it, putting the lock on the door, and then the county shows up and says, just kidding, you don't own the house, we do. I think this was one of the greatest bait and switches in corporate history. What did that do to the trust factor of corporations wanting to advertise on Facebook? Uh, I think it was temporary because there's so much momentum. It's such an outstanding product. They have such power. that, And uh, and quite frankly, also, I think they've done such a great job managing their image because I think their management team is likable, which I think is incredibly important. People have largely overlooked it. If you wanna, If you want to figure out a way to like somebody, you figure it out. What about ad fatigue is something that certainly is an issue these days. Yes, yeah, so the, the engagement levels, the percentage of people interacting with a piece of content on Facebook, are, uh, 17% of their posts are sponsored, meaning they're basically advertising. And Inserted the, right into your Right wall. into your feed. One mm-hmm. out of six pieces of content is, is someone's paying to get in front of you. Interrupt, interruption advertising, no different than television. However, the interaction or the percentage of people who are liking, sharing, or commenting on that comment, on that content has declined 20% in the last nine months. So you are seeing what you would call ad fatigue low. Now, having mm-hmm. said that, they have other properties and tons of different ways to monetize, but the core platform does, ex- does seem to be experiencing ad fatigue. And what about Facebook Live and Facebook Native Stories? Is that going anywhere, or what, what's the outlook on that? So I, I, I personally believe the, the, the biggest innovation or the most, the thing to watch right now is uh, from our, one of their properties, Instagram, specifically Instagram stories, because mm-hmm. it is squarely going after Snapchat. And what's interesting, and I think the most interesting piece of data in the world of media right now is to look at Snapchat's user growth and daily active users once Instagram launched stories, a direct competitor. And what you've seen is Snapchat's growth has decelerated dramatically since Instagram launched stories. So people think Snapchat is the Facebook of video. My thesis is that, in fact, Facebook is the Facebook of video and is coming after Snapchat. And it's fun to speculate, but I think Snapchat goes public, goes crazy on first day of trading because people haven't had access to a unicorn in a while. But I think it's going to be ground zero for ringing the bell at the top and be one of the greatest. uh, I I think we're setting ourselves up for something that might be the spark that torches the market with Snapchat. My special guest today is Professor Scott Galloway of NYU Stern School of Business. He is an expert on internet technology, digital marketing, branding. And let's talk about one of the biggest companies in that space, Amazon. Last time you were here, we Mm -hmm. talked about uh, why you thought the stock was overvalued and wouldn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You very famously issued a mea culpa mm-hmm. online, said pretty much that marked the start of the next major leg up. Um, what do we think of Amazon today? So first off, yeah, I, I was 110% wrong on that. My initial thought was that the future is about multi-channel retail. Their fulfillment costs were escalating, and I thought that they were going to need to buy a multi-channel retailer. The delivery the, costs also had had has gone up in billions. Yeah, it continues to, but now now people see it as an asset, not a liability, and, and there's some some merit to that. 
So uh, at the time, I thought, okay, Apple would be the first trillion-dollar company because somebody's going to get there. And what Apple's pulled off is exceptional, lowest price or low-cost provider because of their supply chain power, but at the same time, the margins, premium price products. So the the volumes of Toyota with the margins of Ferrari, which makes for the most profitable company in history. Now, Amazon – Amazon is the most disruptive company in the largest economy in the world. And if you look at the moats and the number of distinct businesses they would have that would probably be greater than $100 billion businesses on their own, they have the most. Apple's right up there, but now you have AWS, um, you have the core platform itself. It looks as if Amazon Prime and their media properties are turning into a juggernaut. I also believe the real growth business for them is that they're going into the business of selling picks as opposed to mining for gold, leasing planes, leasing tractor trailers. Um, they're going after FedEx and UPS. $120 billion in market cap between DHL, FedEx, and UPS. And I think Amazon's decided they want most or all of it. I think most of us are in, uh, who have e-commerce companies or brands are going to start using Amazon uh, not only as a, as a platform with Amazon Marketplace, but using Amazon to deliver the last mile. Where are they going to stop growing? Where do they draw the line? Or are they just completely no market is uh, too far for them? I think when it comes to your low consideration purchases or your high consideration purchases that you don't enjoy, auto insurance, Mm -hmm. I think Amazon wants all of it. And what's interesting about Amazon and one of the incredibly impressive things, uh, the hardware innovation of 2016, uh, even though it came out earlier than that, was the Echo. And if you have, do you have an Amazon Echo? I uh, do not. So you get one of these things, and it literally kind of blows your mind because you get a glimpse into what the future of retail and commerce might be. You could you put these things around your house, and literally at this vo- at this volume, you know, you say Alexa, and it says yes, and you make a request: order an Uber, add Tide to my shopping basket. And when you start thinking about the frictionless nature of voice. You start thinking about Amazon's purchase history, the fact they have your credit card, one-click ordering, the reputation for value they have, the fact that they have a warehouse within 20 miles of 45% of the population, which is mis- it's misleading because it's really 80% of the disposable income of the mm-hmm. U.S. You have what I believe, and by the way, I don't know this. I don't work directly with Amazon. I believe they're headed to something called Prime Squared or some, something similar to that. They'll announce a test area, and they'll say, Barry... We know a lot about you. We're going to install these echoes all over your house. Whenever you need anything, you calibrate up or down. We send you two boxes three times a week. One's with your stuff. The second, you put stuff that you don't want back in the box, and we calibrate some more. And over time, we're going to take your entire retail ecosystem off the table from everybody else. And Mm -hmm. 80, 90% of everything you order in your life that you don't enjoy ordering, you enjoy looking for cars. You want to go buy Mm -hmm. that BMW Z8. Your wife wants to buy that pair of Christian Louboutins. The other 95% of stuff you don't enjoy buying, Amazon is going to do for you automatically. They're going to do a test, most likely in a college town. They're going to announce they're going to take Prime from $1,300 a year to $8,000. The stock's going to be- Per user. Per household, the stock's going to become anti-gravity and go to a trillion dollars. I think Amazon's the first one to get it. So here's why I haven't gotten the Echo. I have two experiences, three Mm -hmm. experiences, with voice recognition software. One is Google Voice, which is sort of a hilarious, garbled Mm -hmm. thing. The second is Siri, Siri. which which if you read the Damn You Autocorrect is one of the funniest collection of, Mm -hmm. of typos, and we've all experienced really embarrassing things because of the way that works. So I looked at Echo as just another mediocre voice recognition product. You're telling me that's not true. Well, they're trying to, Google and Apple are trying to, it's probably more ambitious, they're trying to do it more around 
utility, find find me an Applebee's, or how do I get here, or call Barry. Mm -hmm. Alexa is, all right, get me information. Use it for a search engine. My son does it to test his geography skills and capital skills. But they're positioning it around commerce. And when you think about the easiest place to make decisions around commerce seamlessly, saying, Alexa, you know, barbecue eight people Friday night, and it immediately goes into your purchase history, your preferences, your brand preferences, and puts together a package of additional additional ribs, imported beer, but IPA, because that's what you like, and then a selection of stuff, and it begins to calibrate and can get it there within two hours because of their fulfillment network. You at some point just sort of throw in the towel and realize that Amazon is the only retailer that matters, is mm-hmm. the only retailer I need in my life. And as we get more, we get busier and busier and suffer from more and more time poverty, the opportunity for voice, artificial intelligence, and the incredible investment they've made in fulfillment infrastructure will result in a value proposition where you might decide all the shopping and decisions I make around commerce in my life, except for the ones I love, I am just going to outsource to Amazon. You also have an Amazon, to a certain extent, the game is sort of already over. I play, I play Texas Hold'em poker every, every few weeks with a bunch of guys. And at some point when one player has most of the chips, he or she's already won because mm-hmm. they can muscle everybody out by just going all in until they finally win. Amazon basically is at that point. Their access to capital is probably, they've had access to cheaper capital for longer than probably any company in modern history. And as a result, they're basically muscling everybody out. What is the problem with Apple's mission description? Well, there, there isn't one. The others have very succinct and compelling missions that are the, the, invest, the investment community understands and demands. Apple does not. It's not entirely clear what Apple is trying to achieve long term. So as a result, Apple has become a what have you done for me lately in the investment market. It's mm-hmm. evaluated in the context of every product release. And if that product doesn't revolutionize the world, which many have, the stock gets taken down. So you have, you have uh, the other horsemen, Facebook, Amazon, and Google trading at anywhere between kind of 20 and 60 times EBITDA, and you have Apple trading at 7 to 10. So you could argue Apple could be the first trillion-dollar company if it just got a story, if it just said, this is what we're about and where we're headed. I want to talk about the Apple Watch, mm-hmm. which people have called kind of a failure. But when you look at the numbers, mm-hmm. and when you look at what they've done to the Swiss watchmaking group, let, let's talk about that. Is the Apple Watch a success or a failure? I notice you're not wearing one. I'm not. So the- Nor am first I. Off, and this goes back to what Apple strength is. This thing on my wrist, I haven't wound it in five years. Right. If I'm Same honest with, with myself, it's my attempt to signal masculinity and success to the opposite, success, uh, opposite sex. I think men who wear expensive watches are basically trying to communicate to women, if you mate with me, your kids are more likely to survive than if they mate with someone wearing a swatch so, watch. So this is a uh, Darwinian- These are feathers, period. Okay. Full stop feathers. They have no very little utility. Mm-hmm. And Apple's genius has been figuring out a way to make a tech item feathers. Apple has effectively decided they want out of the technology hardware business, which trades at a multiple of EBITDA, and they want to be in the luxury business, which trades at a multiple of revenues. It's a far superior business. The only way they can sustain their margins is by having what we would refer to as self-expressive benefit. Mm -hmm. Apple has become the ultimate display of wealth. If you do a heat map by operating system, Android versus iOS, it is a heat map of wealth. Manhattan lights up iOS. You go into the suburbs, it's Android. The new feather if you have an iPhone, it means you're more likely 
to be successful, educated, and have a random sexual experience. This is <laughs> this is the reason that they have the highest margins in that industry. And the iPhone is the first technology product whose margins have not eroded as the product has matured because they've figured out it's a luxury brand. It's not a technology brand. So one of your presentations, you talk about the mobile phone as the defining technology of our age. Sure. Apple captures 92% of the profits. Samsung captures 13 to 14%, which includes some... Overlap because mm -hmm. they're a big supplier to Apple. Mm -hmm. The rest of the industry are negative. Fights the losses. And Apple versus Samsung is illuminating because they've taken different approaches. Samsung invests two to three times the amount of their top line revenues in traditional advertising and digital marketing. So what does Apple do with all that excess capital? They have open stores. Most people would say that Apple's genius has been the iPhone. I would argue that Apple's genius move over the last 13 years, was building 450 temples to the brand and 18 markets called stores. All right, so let's let's talk about some of the other things that, for, for those of you listening, you should definitely check out Professor Galloway's uh, videos on YouTube. They're incredibly informative and often entertaining. Uh, a line you said not too long ago I thought was fascinating is, advertising is a tax on the poor. Explain. Mm -hmm. So effectively, technology is allowing us to opt out of advertising. I'm, I, I love Modern Family. I don't know if you watch Modern sure. Family. Sure, great. But I now download it from iTunes for two ninety nine, even though I could download it as quickly from ABC.com because ABC.com makes me watch nine minutes of commercials. Mm -hmm. I think just as we become numb to mass shootings in the U.S., we become numb to advertising. I think advertising is so ubiquitous, but at the same time so terrible. We were talking about age. I'm at a, I've worked out my whole life. I'm at an age where I can no longer do impact sports, so I'm swimming. Mm -hmm. And swimming is typically the first few minutes are shocked your system, no fun. I'm not going to be able to do this very long. Then you get into a rhythm and you get going. I think great storytelling on television is like that, where it takes a while, sometimes two or three episodes mm -hmm. into the season to really get into it. I find I'm just finally starting to get into season six, I think it is, of Homeland. I equate advertising to your first 11 minutes in the pool, and then someone takes an enormous dump in the pool. And they, <laughs> it's shocking. It's out of character. It's, it's disturbing. You have to stop swimming and listen to, and clean it up for two minutes. That is advertising. So technology is allowing us to opt out. You're going to have the NewYorkTimes.com without advertising soon. And the reality is they don't get that much money from you. It is such a game of scale. The New York Times only gets $2.70 a year for littering, that, that gorgeous journalism with all sorts of ads. Modern Family only gets $0.55 cents an episode per viewer. Business Insider, Barry only gets $0.65 cents a year for making you endure all those irrelevant, obsolete, and obtuse ads that slow the load time. Advertising is becoming a tax, the poor, and the technologically illiterate pay. So what does that mean to companies like Google and Facebook if we're just becoming oblivious to these ads? Well, Google, you're sort of asking for the ads. I mean, Google has the most relevant ads in the world because you're the one saying, I'm interested in auto insurance. And then it says, all right, these are the organic listings by auto insurance companies or articles on auto insurance that have credibility or that people search for. But along the right rail, we're going to let auto insurance companies advertise. So it's almost like you're asking for the advertising. Mm -hmm. Facebook is still interruption advertising. I think they're going to have to get into different businesses because I do think there is at some point every media company is going to have to offer a non-ad supported product. But these these companies, their content is so compelling. I mean, most probably most successful media company in the world, uh, Google, because you've wanted the ads. I would say the second most successful media company in the world the last thirty years, Bloomberg. 
And guess what? It's not ad-supported. It's subscription-based. Right. A survivability index for all media companies globally is very easy. Take the percentage of the revenues they're getting from subscription versus advertising. The part of this house that makes a ton of money, it's 100% Subscription. subscription. Right. So the more advertising, the weaker the longevity You'd rather be forecast. HBO than ESPN right now. You referenced not too long ago the Winner Take All Society, which was a book in the mid-90s by Robert Frank, mm-hmm. a prior guest on Masters in Business, mm-hmm. and essentially says no matter where you look, you can look in sports, you can look at actors, you can look at music, you can look in companies, there's a winner in a given space, and then everybody else comes in third. What does this mean for technology? What does this mean for content? It's dramatic, and, and you you do this for a living. There are, of the S and P five hundred, uh, there are only thirteen companies that that beat the index five years in a row. That's unbelievable. So every you know, it's it's never been better to be a winner. And unfortunately, we have this lottery economy because those companies get a tremendous amount of heat in advertising and publicity. We assume there are more winners than there are. Mm-hmm. Now the winners are enormous. You, you hit it. You, you hit it big. It's never. It's never been a better time to remark, be remarkable. Access to global markets, the ability to scale your intellectual property, the ability for good products and good people to get it out there on whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook or dis- consumer discovery. There's never been a worse time to be good. It, it, you know, it's the way I think of it is when I got out of business school, we all made eighty five thousand dollars, and some made seventy, and some made a hundred. But now in my class, I teach two classes, 120 kids, I can tell you there's going to be a billionaire in one of my classes tonight. One of the things you said was that it's never been easier. I'm, I'm going to just keep throwing your own quotes sure. at you. It's never been easier to be a billionaire in this society, and it's never been harder to become a millionaire. The compact is breaking down. You, you, you go to undergrad, you study hard, you get a good job, you go to graduate school, you're a good citizen, you work hard, you get the credentials. You, you you get a partner that's also uh, you know a, a contributor to you economically. It's not unreasonable to think you could save a million bucks mm-hmm. over 20, 30, 40 years and retire a millionaire. That's getting harder and harder to do. But at the same time, everyone has an outside shot at becoming part of something unbelievable and becoming a billionaire. The other kids in my class, I think there's going to be a, a decent non-zero percentage of my class that's going to end up getting unlucky getting getting having some dents in their career background which by the way they won't be able to gloss over because linkedin Nothing creates tremendous away. transparency and will be excluded from quote unquote the information economy and will end up you know, living with their parents until they're 50 or 60 I, it, we are we are entering an economy where it's winner take all and we don't have you know we don't believe in income distribution we like to, because there's some very well advertised success stories People would rather everybody. If people play the lottery because sure. it's it statistically is bad for us. We know it's not good, but hey, baby, uh, my numbers are going to win. Let's talk. Since I mentioned Twitter, let's talk about Twitter. Another quote of yours: "A good board cannot save a bad company, but a bad board can ruin a good company." What What's the problem with Twitter? Uh, a negligent board, unforgivable. Uh, the fact that they've decided that. Whatever it is, 2,000 employees, a great product should be subject uh, or should be led by a part-time employee. Meaning the CEO. CEO. And I I don't know him. He sounds like a product visionary. But to say that a company is complicated, an environment is competitive, where as many people, uh, where they have as many investors, where they have as many people trying to make a living from the fortunes or misfortune of Twitter, to decide that a part-time CEO is the right guy. How do you say to the rest of the management team, by the way, almost all of whom have left 
Mm-hmm. This thing is like rats off a ship right now. <laughs> How do you say to them, this guy at 25 hours a week is better than you at 50 hours a week? And, and it's such a great platform, and too. It's a fantastic product. You you literally have negligence on behalf of the board to put up with this. It's part of our idolatry of innovators. A young guy who's very impressive shows up in a black turtleneck, and they think we've reincarnated Steve Jobs. And he they did it take, with Pixar and Apple. And they, uh, it is very a very dangerous strategy to compare anyone to Steve Jobs That's right. and assuming it's going to happen again. So we end up like in an abusive relationship. We end up taking abuse that we shouldn't. It's it's ridiculous. He's going to go down. Uh, he's going to go down as one of the worst CEOs in tech, and mm-hmm. it's not his fault. It's his board's fault. Boards have a fiduciary responsibility. The board of Twitter is negligent. Uh, Professor Galloway, thank you so much uh, you. for being Scott. I don't know what the hell to call you. Scott's good. Scott's good. During the break, we were talking about what happened to comments in general, and I mm-hmm. said – when I was writing Bailout Nation, I would put a post up online, do 500 to 700 words. People mm-hmm. would give me comments, suggestions, ideas, sources. I was writing that in real time relative to the crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the it was due August 30th, uh, 2008, and then mm-hmm. that weekend when it was due, all, all hell broke loose. Mm-hmm. And so it, it got extended till December 31st, but I'm writing it in real time. Mm-hmm. My readers are really my co-authors. They mm-hmm. did a tremendous amount of work. You publish a ton, especially on YouTube. Mm-hmm. What's going on with some of the comments on, on YouTube? What is that like? So 95 to 98% of them are really supportive, interesting dialogue. The comments, when they don't agree with you, are generally respectful. But that 2 or 3% can be pretty rattling. And everybody, I like to put up this persona that, oh, I don't care. I can take it. I don't care what other people think. Thick skin. Yeah, and it rattles me. Some, mm-hmm. When people really say these incredibly personal, and, and what's weird is some of them seem to research you and try and find something that's gonna gonna upset you or even even frighten you. So there's an element of it that's really disturbing. What's interesting though is that if you think about the, this notion of identity, and that is Facebook forces you to say who you are in and real put life. some feature. And it's created, I think, a more civil platform. Mm-hmm. And even when you think about the power of identity around Uber, you wouldn't get in the back seat of a driver that hadn't been vetted. Sure. Seeing his or her face makes you feel more comfortable. And they wouldn't likely let a stranger get in the back seat that they couldn't track down with their credit card number or their identity. So this notion of identity as it relates to Facebook, Uber, and even Airbnb, I would argue that the identity technology is really what's made Airbnb, Airbnb a 25 or $30 billion company or value company mm-hmm. is a really powerful notion in the internet age. But I think it's good that people, that platforms decide to force people to say, this is who I am. And it creates a more civil environment because all of a sudden people turn very mean online. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about relevant to, um, relevant to the, to the comment situation is what does that have to with Facebook, mm-hmm. since they're making you identify who you are, instead of having really vociferous comments, you end up with fake news that gets passed along repeatedly. That seems to be the Facebook equivalent of the the angry egg on Twitter mm-hmm. um, or just the insane comment on YouTube. Well, the scandal of, we talked about Echo being the product of 2016. The scandal of 2016, and we, we just don't know it yet, was fake news. It's going to get, 
it's going to get bigger and bigger in terms of the damage we we perceive or that has actually happened to society. 60% of our news is now digested and absorbed from social media. 80% of the news coming out of social media the week running up to the election was fake news. Really? And one of the issues I personally have with Google and Facebook is this notion that if you look at their vocabulary and words matter, they're trying to avoid the word media to describe their companies. Mm -hmm. They're saying they're platforms. And the analogy I would use, Barry, is that if McDonald's said, all right, 80% of the beef we're serving you is fake and giving you encephalitis, and as a result, you're making bad decisions. <laughs> Mad cow disease. We're not responsible for it because we're not a fast food restaurant. We're a fast food platform. And I think these companies trying to absolve themselves of the responsibility and the damage they've done by calling themselves platforms and not media companies. By the way, they're media companies. They create content. They sell advertising against that content. Boom, you're a media company. But they need to do a quarter of the fact-checking and the resource investment that the New York Times and Bloomberg make in ensuring that what mm -hmm. we are digesting is not fake and making us sick. This is the scandal of 2016, hugely damaging to our society. I think they have a responsibility to make a statement. And what they've done so far is they're so remiss to alienate anyone on the far left or the far right, because as Michael Jordan said, Republicans buy shoes too. They, mm -hmm. they assume everybody watches ads, so we don't care how crazy you are. We, want, we don't want to alienate anybody. and uh, We want the entire market. We want everyone watching on, on our platform. And it, it's sort of enough is enough. They're going to have to come up with some standards, kick some people off, squelch some content, be and they'll be accused of censorship. But they're going to have to acting the same way a lot of these media companies, including Bloomberg, Hearst, Condonat, there's going to have to be something resembling editorial standards. You there. need to lose the 10% that's toxic. and Otherwise, they're, from a business perspective, they're putting the 90% at risk, the people they're monetizing, that once people come to realize, hey, this platform is a disaster, I think that's been Twitter's big mistake. And they're just now taking steps to not so much kick people off the platform. The latest thing I've been reading about is if you're identified as a troll or someone who is harassing people because they're gay or black or mm -hmm. Jewish or what have you or Muslim, mm -hmm. um, they're basically not going to let you put names in tweets. So you'll be mm -hmm. able to harass people without identifying them and it, it's it's just lost in the breeze. No one will see it or hear it. But and this is this is, you know, this gets me into trouble, but effectively, most of the leadership of these companies wrap themselves in a progressive blanket mm -hmm. to a certain extent because, A, I think they have personally those viewpoints, but also it's awfully convenient because as a whole, progressives are perceived as being uh, really thinking. nice but weak, and conservatives are seen as being smart but mean. And if a smart but mean person was running the most powerful company in the world, Google, Facebook, Amazon, or Apple, regulators would step in early. So it's convenient for them to be seen as kind of nice and cuddly and granola. Uh -huh. But the reality is I don't think you can really claim to be a progressive if the company that you have a lot of power of has become weaponized by the far right. So I see hypocrisy every, everywhere here. These companies, these, these individuals prostitute the progressive values in order to soften the image of their company such that they avoid regulatory scrutiny at the same time they have allowed their companies to be weaponized by the far right. I find it. I find contradiction in it everywhere. I only have you for uh, uh, so many minutes left, so I wanted to get to my favorite questions. Uh, biggest winner of 2017, Netflix. Netflix, operating system for joy in our lives. Um, you look at, uh, in sum, I think that the economy is bifurcated. There's only two sets of winners, and it's a small number of companies. 
what I refer to as Benjamin Button companies, mm -hmm. they come as an age in reverse. When you turn on Waze and you use it, it gets better. The majority of products from the economic titans of yesterday, General Motors and Unilever, they aged. When they I got used, worse. When I used a car, when I used toothpaste, it declined in value. The companies that are garnering the disproportionate spoils of our modern day economy are Benjamin Button, the age in reverse. Every time you do a Google search, it gets one three billionth better, the product. <laughs> Every time you turn on Waze, it gets better for everybody now else. Now a Google company, right? That's right. Facebook, every time you use it, the product gets better for everybody else. That's one set of winners. The other set of winners are the companies that help other companies reduce costs. Accenture, most successful services company in the world, mm -hmm. is effectively helping big companies cut costs. Outsourcing companies, helping companies cut costs. So effectively, our economy, the winners, are bifurcating into companies that age in reverse or companies that take care of the aged. You're either you're either Benjamin Button or you're dying or you're t you're caring for the sick. Those are the two companies that are working right now. We we began by referencing the four horsemen. Mm -hmm. It's always the next natural question is yeah. who's the fifth horseman? So I went off on a tangent there with my whole Benjamin Button rap, but I effectively think Netflix does take information around your viewership. It's very simple, but it's very powerful. Last night I'm watching House of Cards season four, episode eight, and Netflix is smart enough to go. If Scott likes season four, episode eight, we think he's going to like season four, episode nine, and they start auto-playing it. And it sounds basic, but it is the notion of, of, of an artificial intelligence figuring out what you want. And if you look at my home screen on Netflix, it has a bunch of stuff I want to watch. There are now more people, more millen millen millennials, more millennials watch Netflix or have Netflix than have cable TV. Wow. So arguably, Netflix should be worth more than all of cable TV if you think that millennials are the generation. They have the most disposable income. They're the ones that are going to go into their prime earning years. Larger than soon. boomers now? I think they do. A, I think also they do a fantastic job. The iOS is our mobile system for what I'll call the utility in our life. Amazon is our operating system for commerce. Facebook, I think, is a little bit our operating system for love and relationships. And I think Netflix is becoming our operating system for joy. I think it's got an opportunity to be a two or three hundred billion dollar market cap company. All right, so let's go into our favorite Oh we didn't do biggest losers though. Biggest loser seventeen. Okay. Snapchat. Snap we said that earlier. Snapchat, Snapchat. you think the yeah. IPO is going to be the mark the high price of of Snapchat. I think it I think it'd be, be better for our economy if it did well because we need a third player in the ecosystem outside of Google and Facebook. But I think Snapchat is going to uh, get public, go crazy because of pent-up demand from retail investors who've been excluded from Uber and Airbnb, uh, and then I think it's going to then it's going to be sort of a slow, slow-moving train wreck. Here's who I have down for your losers theme from 2017: Pinterest. Yeah. Why is Pinterest a loser? Uh, fantastic, fantastic product, not a great business. Uh, immature management team that thinks it's in the business of art, not in the art of business. Again, another failure on the part of the board. And one of the things about venture capital is if you manage to get, you have an obligation to get the highest valuation possible. But the problem is when you raise money at, I think, a 12 or $13 billion market value. A little, little rich. Well, then you've got all these prefs. Um, the company should have been bought for $5 billion and everybody would have done really well. But mm -hmm. now the, they've convinced people to invest at 12 or 13 There's effectively only three or four buyers of Pinterest. Of all the brands we track at L2, we don't know any actually buying advertising uh -huh. on Pinterest. So I That's think, again, this is a failure of a board. There's very few CEOs that can go from A to Z. I think they have a genius CEO in terms of product. He's not the guy to take it to the next level, and the board has failed to make the hard decisions around that. Management turnover there has been an absolute uh, – uh, the word I would uh, want to use Debacle? Is debacle. 
Okay. I was going to I was going to use another term, but uh, <laughs> I was going to say cluster something, but mm-hmm. cluster debacle, cluster debacle. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a I think it's a fantastic company. I think it's wildly overvalued. Twitter overvalued. Most overvalued company in the world right now. Uh-huh. Right? We work. $17 billion. We looked at a WeWork space, and it was fantastic it's if fantastic. I was 40 years younger and in the world of tech, these tiny little spots. Great, great company, great concept, might even be worth a billion dollars. But right now, if you look at WeWork, it's trading at $440,000 per customer little if high, you look at their valuation. little stiff. If you take the majority of the WeWork buildings they're in, and you mm-hmm. take the floor they've leased and put in a cool coffee bar, great marketing, right. great concept, great business model, and it is a great business and a great business model, but that floor is now worth more than the entire building Makes they're leasing no that floor. So is it a great company? Yes. Is it a great idea? Yes. Is it worth 10 to 20% of what it's worth now? Yes. Most overvalued company in the world. You know, it's the same thing as a Regis or there's a handful of companies that do the office shares. They just made it younger, hipper. There's a bar and a a coffee coffee lounge in the ground floor. The one on Bryant Park is funky and hip. They do a fantastic... Look, Twitter's an amazing company. I think it's worth a billion, two billion dollars, which puts it at about 70% worth less than it is now. Mm-hmm. All of these companies are amazing. I'm not taking anything away from them. The problem is when you layer in their valuation, they make no sense. So let's talk about a couple of other things on your loser list. Jet.com, recently purchased by Walmart, a I think. Three and right? a half billion dollar hair plugs, trying to make... <laughs> trying to make Walmart going through a midlife crisis, trying to hang with the cool kids, not recognizing it's a mature company that should be slowing down its capex and reduce, you know, and spending a ton of cash back to shares. Says we we have a culture problem. The most expensive aqua hire in history three hundred three and a half billion dollars or about six and a half million dollars per employee wow. will be the biggest write down in the history of retail. And what about Dollar Shave Club? You, you've said another things- Another great company, uh, Dollar Shave Club. Was that a billion dollar acquisition? Billion dollars. I think about, I think about three and a half million dollars per employee, losing money, supposedly had discovered a new model for acquiring customers online. Gillette spent $50 million on TV advertising last year. Dollar Shave Club spent $55 million wow. on TV advertising. The biggest winner in the Dollar Shave Club acquisition was Procter & Gamble, who had a competitor taken out of the marketplace on Unilever's balance sheet. <laughs> That's fantastic. Our last two questions. Yeah. Um, so you work with a lot of students and millennials. What sort of advice do you give someone who says, I want to go into fill-in-the-blank technology, sure. digital content? I think about this a lot. A couple things. One, uh, don't follow your passion. Most people who tell you to follow your passion, unfortunately, it's every speaker at lunchtime in Stern is already rich. <laughs> Figure out what you're good at mm-hmm. and then try and really expand. And And being great at something will give you the currency and the economic reward and the psychological reward such that you'll start to love it. So your job as a young person is to figure out something you're good at, not not your passions. I was I was meant to be quarterback of the Jets. I have a good plane of vision, a decent arm. I would have been, loved it, uh, I, but I wasn't. I was mediocre at it as mm-hmm. an athlete growing up. Uh, what I ended up being semi great at was starting starting companies and analytics. Find out what you're good at. Get to a business that has recurring revenue. Recurring revenue companies are valued at a multiple of revenues versus a multiple of EBITDA. You want to be in a recurring revenue company. You want to be, in my opinion, getting more tactical. The two technologies in the next three to five years are voice and mm-hmm. messaging. I'd want to find companies in the ecosystem of voice and messaging. Get to a city 
Two-thirds of the economic development is going to be in within a bike ride of a major world-class engineering university. Make sure you live near one of those and get into that ecosystem. You pointed out that most of the major successful companies in the S&P 500 are all right near a major uh, university, a renowned university. How can you tell if a kid's successful, how long does it take him or her to get to the biggest city in their country, and then how long does it take them to get to London and Europe, Shanghai, Shanghai, Beijing, or Hong Kong, or Singapore in Asia, or San Francisco, New York, in the U.S., our most talented human capital is flocking to these barter town, full full body contact business centers. And your your ability to get the skill set, the competitive nature, the grit, and the opportunities is very geographically sensitive. The intellectual capital is there. And our final question: What is it that you know about technology, digital brands, marketing, startups today that you wish you knew twenty plus years ago when you began? Uh, you, in the one of my uh, venture capitalists, Larry Bond, says success is in the agency of others. Trying to find good people and then overcompensate, show empathy for them, really trying to figure out what it is they want and make your successes there such that they're loyal to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was a little bit more Darwinian as a, as, a, as a younger person. And also just get to a business with um, recurring revenue. I know that sounds ridiculous, but no, it works. The, the business of software is just a better business. The business of owning a gym versus par- private training is a bet. Being the insurance company that gets the bills everybody every year, as opposed to the doctor, the healthcare provider, recurring revenue, I think, sorts out and get towards something that is d- one or two degrees separated from the plumbing price and processing power or something around technology. Technology is eating the world. We have been speaking with Professor Scott Galloway of NYU Stern School of Business. If you want to learn more, go to his YouTube channel. Just search for Scott Galloway at L2. Or uh, we didn't talk about your book. You have a book coming out in September. We'll revisit that when that book comes out, Winners and Losers. Yep, Winners and Losers. Who's publishing that? Portfolio Penguin Random Random House. Not self-published. You should be a self-publisher. Just barely. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch, down an inch on Apple iTunes. You can see any of the other 130 such conversations. I would be remiss if I did not thank my booker, Taylor Riggs, my recording engineer, Medina, or Michael Batnick, my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.